We're going to begin reading in verse 16. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And he came down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet! Come out of him! And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Just about a stone throw from the synagogue, by the way. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And he, standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. She immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came... Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him, and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. I was sent for this purpose. And so he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Father, I pray that you will bless this time today as we consider your word, as we consider your son, 
as we seek, Lord, Your Spirit to continue to affect us and to lead us and to alter our thinking in the areas where we're off and to keep us dialed into the things that are important to You, Father. That's where we want our hearts to be, where Yours is. In Jesus' name, Amen. In Jesus' day, Nazareth was a small village, probably about 500 in population, maybe less. It had little or no prominence. wasn't even mentioned really historically uh, before the first century. It was there, had been there from about the second century B.C. on, but it was just a tiny little village. John chapter 2, verse 45 tells us that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Joseph. That'd be like saying Jesus of Bo. I mean, no offense if you live in Bo, but it's a small area, right? Jesus of Cedro. You know? And Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. So a tiny little village on a ridge of 500 people today has a population of over 70,000 people. Nazareth is mostly Arab in population, 70% Muslim, about 30% or so Christian. In 1950, Jews began to resettle that ridge, that same ridge. In fact, above and to the east of Nazareth, a city called Nazareth Elite. Not elite like we think of the word elite, but it means upper Nazareth. So there's Nazareth, primarily Arab, and above and to the east of it, there is Nazareth elite upper Nazareth, which is primarily Jewish. In fact, it's home to about 40,000 Jews today, especially resettled from Russia and South America. Situated like a a bowl-like dip in what is called the Nazareth Ridge, however, is the city of Nazareth, that primarily Arabic city. The city itself in this dip is within easy reach of the edge of the ridge, the southern end called Mount Kedumim. Mount Kedumim has also been called by some Mount Precipice because it juts out like a large precipice and two to 250 feet below are nothing but rocks. It overlooks the Valley of Megiddo. It's a breathtaking overlook there in Israel. And in the middle of the noisy, bustling, modern city of Nazareth today, there's a small tourist attraction some of you have seen called Nazareth Village. Nazareth Village itself has been built on land that was quarried and farmed from the 2nd century B.C. to the 1st century B.C. So it was an actual farm in the days of Jesus because of things that they have found there and archaeological discoveries. Ancient features discovered include three watchtowers from that time. Uh, In addition, a wine press, stone quarries, a farm, a bunch of farm terraces coming down the side of this hill, a spring-fed irrigation system that was carved out of bedrock, bedrock. <laughs> and it is the last surviving farmland from the first century there in Nazareth. So not only being an attraction for tourists to get a sense of maybe what old Nazareth is like, it is built on this archaeological find of some significance. Now, if you were to go to Nazareth Village today, you would start at the bottom of the hill and you would make your way up switchbacks all the way up the side of this ridge through farmlands. On the way up, you would pass robed shepherds and and farmers and laborers dressed in first century garb. You would see sheep and goats and donkeys who add to the effect. 
And eventually at the top of the hill you come to a stone-walled village, uh, a reconstruction of a first century village, just as Jesus might have wandered through growing up there in Nazareth. Women weave and men carve and you go in and you can try some of that stuff out. Finally you come to a reconstructed first century Jewish synagogue. And that's where the tour ends, in that synagogue. And every time we stand in that synagogue, I can vividly see that astonishing moment that Luke described before us that we just read in this passage. Think about it again, beginning in verse 16, it says, Jesus came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as was His custom, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. As was His custom. What does that tell you? Jesus was a churchgoer. It was customary for Jesus to be in the synagogue on Shabbat. That's what He did. That's where He went. That's where He wanted to be. We talked about that last week. Why would Jesus want to be there? Because Jesus always wants to be where His people are gathered. Because Jesus always wants to be where the counsel of His Word is honored and taught. And so it was His custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Verse 17 says the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Now before we read that, they hand the book to him. Why? What's going on here? The typical order of a synagogue service began with opening prayer and songs of praise, followed by a weekly Torah reading. So Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then followed by a weekly reading from the scroll of the prophets. And perhaps if someone wanted to expound upon it, a sermon would follow. If a special or learned visitor was present, oftentimes that scroll of the prophets was handed on Shabbat to that visitor, and the visitor would read from it and share some of his thoughts, some of his uh, insights to the passage. So on this day, the scroll that was opened just happened to be Isaiah. And the visitor just happened to be Jesus. And he opened up and read... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through halfway verse 2. He stops halfway through, because there's more to come. But he reads this passage, and on this day, Jesus says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, reading ahead and studying and thinking ahead... I could have spent more time on that passage from Isaiah. In fact, we have that. If you'd like to study it out and really think through the words of the prophet that Jesus quoted, I encourage you to go online and listen to the study entitled Servant Song Number 5, The Favorable Year. So you can do that. But that's not where we're going to go this morning. God really took me in a different direction. I want to touch on something else. Something that jumped off of the page to me very clearly this past week here in Luke chapter 4. But before I tell you what it is, listen again to what Jesus said. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone's looking at him. Everyone's waiting to see, what? What are you saying, Jesus? 
Jesus answers two questions about Isaiah's prophecy. When would Isaiah's prophecy come to pass? Jesus said, just has. He said, today. Who was Isaiah talking about? And Jesus says, you're looking at him. It's happened today, and you're looking at the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now understand, even when Jesus said that, up to this point, all the people were speaking well of him. Even when he said this, for the very next thing Luke says is all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? You can imagine there in church on that Sunday, the church he grew up in, the synagogue he had grown up in, look at how he's grown and matured, they might say. Why, it seems like just last week he stayed behind in Jerusalem and gave his folks a heart attack. It kind of feels that way for us too, doesn't it? And in verse 22... Again, all were speaking well at Him, wondering at His words. They were so impressed. And had Jesus just left well enough alone, had He just stopped there, Nazareth would not have erupted into the firestorm of outrage that followed. At this point in the passage, even revealing to to them that He is the fulfillment of the prophecy, if He had stopped, if He hadn't pushed the issue, If he just waited and let the word settle and let them wonder about it and think about it, as he would do in other times of his teaching, if he had just let well enough alone, things might have been okay. Things might have been different. But let's leave that for a moment. Skip down to the events that immediately follow his departure of his hometown. Verse 31. After he leaves Nazareth... He came down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee. Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message, his logos, there is the word, was with authority. He taught with authority. He comes down from the mountainous region of the Jezreel Valley. He heads north to the lower Galilee, to the village of Capernaum by the sea. He heads straight into their synagogue on the Sabbath, The ruins of that synagogue are still there today. And there in Capernaum, the fishing village of Peter, um, Andrew, Peter and Andrew being brothers, lived there in the fishing village of Capernaum. Their mother's house was there. This town would be the base of operations for Jesus' ministry in the region of the Galilee. And Jesus goes in and he begins teaching and we're told that the people were amazed. That word amazed is a great word. It's explosanto. In the Greek, Explosanto, which was an alternate name for the Lone Ranger sidekick, but they didn't go with it. Explosanto literally means to be blown away. That's what the word means, as in blowing something away, as in a great wind, blowing something, someone off their feet, something off of the ground. That's what explosanto means, and it says the people were blown away. I always thought that was a more modern term. Apparently, they were using it back then. Jesus spoke, Jesus taught, and they were like, what? They were blown away. Why? Because Jesus manifested power and authority with the Word of God. With the Logos. As He spoke, He didn't speak like their rabbis taught. No rabbi taught like Jesus taught. When Jesus spoke and taught, and you understand this if you've read the Gospels before, He taught as though He were teaching His own Word. As though he were speaking what he had written himself. He didn't quote the rabbis. He didn't go around saying, well, Rabbi Hillel says thus. Or Rabbi Shammai teaches this. That's what all the rabbis did. 
They based all their teaching and all their thoughts on what other people said, never on their own thoughts, because it wasn't their own word. Jesus comes along and says things like, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you this. My word on the matter is this. And he taught with one who had power and authority over the word. And it blew their minds. Luke chapter 4, verse 24. He will say, I say to you, or he said actually in his hometown, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Luke 6.27, he will say, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. He changed it around. He gave his word. Well, the whole thing is his word. But this was Jesus speaking with power and authority and explosanto blew their minds. Verse 33. And in the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. Jesus just couldn't seem to enter a synagogue without stirring things up. Without amazing things happening. An unclean demon sees Jesus for who He was while in the synagogue of Nazareth, His own people didn't see who He was. Here in Capernaum, the demons are calling Him out. In Nazareth, nobody got it. They didn't understand. Is it possible to miss seeing Jesus at church? Is it possible to sit there week in and week out to become so accustomed to Christian speak that the power and the authority of Jesus Christ in His Word goes undetected? I don't believe that this has happened ever to any of you, but to come into church on a Sunday and to leave the same way you came in, unaffected, untouched by the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Is that a possibility? Jesus ever ignored in church? Overlooked? Missed? I want you all to know I pray against that here. I specifically pray against that. I pray that Jesus is never missed in this place. I pray that His presence is always felt. I pray that He always changes us in some way. I pray that nobody ever walks out the door without being affected by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. I pray what Paul prayed, Ephesians 1.18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And if that prayer affected us, we would not ever be bored in church. We would not ever be thinking about what we're going to do when we're out of here. And yet people do that. And yet the church, and especially in America, has become so lackadaisical about serious moral issues in our culture today, and I think largely because we are not touched by the power of Jesus when we gather. We miss Him. The demons call him out, but we're like sitting in Nazareth going, who is this guy? Wow, it's interesting what he's saying. I don't know if I like how that makes me feel. 
What time is lunch? (laughs) Now, some didn't miss what Jesus was saying at all. Some in Nazareth, in fact, a large number of people in Nazareth, when they started to clue in, hadn't missed what He was saying. They were just offended by it. You ever been offended in church? You ever heard something the pastor was teaching? Not me, but some other guy. (laughs) That was upsetting to you? Disturbing to you? I want to encourage you all something. If you ever find yourself offended, and I'll just, I'll just take it personally here. If you're ever offended by something I say or teach, and some have been, over the years a number have been, I want to ask you to do something before you do anything else. Because I am capable of great offense. Trust me, I know this. But before you get all upset, before you stomp out, before you shoot off an email, before you get angry about it, go back to the disturbing word that was heard and ask the Lord, why are you so upset? What is it about what the past... And not just me, but in any church situation, in any time you're hearing the word taught especially, what is it about the word that bugged you so much? What is it about that was said that was so upsetting? Why is this digging at me, Lord? Now, there may be a couple of reasons for that. One may be what was taught was heretical. And in which case, you should be upset. Another reason may be that what was taught was just kind of out there, off base, really had nothing to do with the sermon. It was just someone picking on other people. And, and, and that's a reason to be upset. But perhaps the reason that we get upset when we hear things spoken out of the Word of God is because they tweak us the wrong way. Because they oppose the style of life that we are living. And so I encourage you, feel free to talk to me, but ask yourself the question first, why am I upset by this? Why is this jabbing me here? You see, Jesus brought that issue up with the Apostle Paul. Paul apparently had been getting stuck right and left by things he was hearing, by things he was seeing. And Paul, sharing the story of his conversion on that road to Damascus, said in Acts chapter 26, verse 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> I love that. Jesus says, Paul, I get it. Saul, I understand. You're having a little trouble here, aren't you? You're going after these Christians and your conscience is getting you. And you are kicking against the goads. What's a goad? It's a cattle prod. And sometimes the Word of God is just that. It is a cattle prod. And it pokes us. And we go, oh, I don't like that. I don't like how that feels. I don't appreciate that. As, as, uh, <laughs> as Deb once said, <clears throat> you said this to me. <laughs> Pastor Rick, there's preaching. And there's meddling. And this morning, you were meddling. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Sometimes the Word of God meddles with us. Sometimes the Word of God messes with us. And we don't like it. And it feels uncomfortable. And if we just up and take our Bibles and go home, and go off to another place, because man, I was offended. Because his theology is different than mine. Because what he was teaching is not what I've always been taught. You know, go back to the Word. Go back to the Lord and say, why am I upset? 
What is I, that guy may be a jerk. We'll leave that alone for a second. But why is this affecting me the way it is? Meanwhile, back in Capernaum, Jesus rebukes the demon, and out it comes. And so, not only has Jesus shown us immediately here at the beginning of his ministry that he manifested power and authority with the word of God, now he's showing us he manifests power and authority over the spirit realm. That the demons are subject to the voice of Christ. That He can say, come out, and they have no option but to do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. Verse 36 says, Amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about Him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Now, here's this word amazement again. We saw before in Nazareth, or they were amazed up there, what is in verse 31, right? Or was, did I tell you earlier? 32? Okay, well they were amazed prior to this, that ex they were blown away. This is a different word. This word for amazement is thombos. And thombos means astonished. Or literally, and I like the literal rendering of it, rendered immovable. I mean, they, they just froze. They're so... They're, they're mentally blown away and they're physically stunned by this man falls to the ground, demons cast out, and they're like, what? what? They are absolutely amazed. And they are, they're asking the question, this guy's got authority over the Word and he's got power over demons. Who is he? And the Apostle Paul would later write, Colossians 2, verse 9, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. May I remind you, and I think it's becoming more important in the days in which we live, that Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. That His Word is the final word, not the superintendent of schools in Anacortes. What, Rick? Last week, the superintendent of public schools in Anacortes called a, had a lawyer come up from Seattle, confronted the coach of the girls' basketball team, asked him, are you having the girls pray before games? Well, yes, we are. You can't do that. You will stop doing that. Are you having? And the girls cannot pray in groups of two or three before a game. And the girls cannot pray by themselves out loud. They can pray in their minds because we can't control that. I would add, yet. You can't pray with the girls in your car off campus. You can't have the girls over for pizza at your house and pray before the meal in his own home. Now, by the way... This lawyer doesn't have a legal leg to stand on. He is completely off base. But this is what's going on right now in Anacortes last week. And I tell you that just to say the authority is Christ. Always will be, always has been, and has been in countries that have far less freedom than we have. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, we feel like we're losing freedoms right and left. Hey, you know what? The church has dealt with no freedom for 2,000 years. The freedom is in Christ but living in countries all around. I read today, this morning, that in Syria, Pakistan, and where was the other place? There's a third Arabic country. Uh, Christian martyrdom has doubled this year. 2,500 Christians have been murdered in those countries. In places like Nigeria, 
50 to 70,000 brothers and sisters in Christ of ours are right now living in, no, no, not Nigeria, in North Korea are living in concentration camps. And yet believing the word. Because they have a higher authority. And our authority must always be Jesus Christ. Our authority always looks to the Lord God first and foremost. And I'm sorry if our laws go head to head with God's laws, I'm going with God's laws. No matter what happens, no matter how that stirs things up. I'm not sitting here going, I have rights as an American. No, I have a Father who is above all rule and authority. Period. We need to understand, and this is vital to getting this whole chapter. Let's get back to Luke here. It's vital to understand the power and the authority that Jesus was evidencing here. That Jesus showed that uh, Jesus obviously had power over the Word, power over the spirit realm. Now hold that thought and look at verse 38. Then he got up and left the synagogue, entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. And from this we know the first pope was married. (laughs) Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter was married. We don't know anything else. We don't know anything else about Peter's wife. We hear nothing about Peter's wife in the scriptures. We hear only scant things about her in church history. Clement of Alexander, who or Alexandria, who lived 150 to 215 AD, he wrote that Peter's wife actually came along and helped him in ministering to the needs of women as he was doing his ministry. So she was involved in his ministry. We don't know absolutely, but Clement says that was the case. She was actually the first director of women's ministries. I think that's a good thing. But this is what's truly remarkable. Not only did Jesus manifest power and authority over the spirit realm and over the word, he manifested power and authority over Peter's mother-in-law. That's power! Seriously, what we see here is Jesus manifesting power and authority over the flesh, over disease, over the physical. So, and you need to understand, remember, Luke is writing this for Theophilus. And Luke is presenting evidence here. And that's his whole purpose, is to get witnesses and evidence and testimony and present this in a chronological order for this Theophilus to understand and to see. And also, as we said early on in our study of Luke, perhaps as a defense for Paul when he was going up against Rome. So Luke's putting all this together and he's showing now this one has authority over the Word. This one has authority over the spirit realm. This man has authority over the flesh. He speaks and disease departs. He rebukes a fever. I've never done that. I'm going to try that next time one of my kids are sick. Rebuke the fever. That sounds kind of Pentecostal. Yeah, it's cool. (laughs) He rebukes the fever. Isaiah said this is what's going to happen when Messiah comes. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Do you see what's happening here? And what Luke is describing in the opening days of Jesus' ministry, that He is everything the Hebrew prophet said that He would be. He is fulfilling right and left all of these messianic prophecies of the one who would come with the power and the authority of God. A prophet speaking the authoritative word. Deuteronomy 18 said that would happen. 
A healer with the power to work miracles. Again, Isaiah 35 talks about that. One who would release the captives, as in those demon-possessed, and set the prisoners free, Isaiah 61. As the Lord had spoken through Habakkuk the prophet, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Check it out. In verse 41, well, verse 40, it says the sun was setting and all those who were sick with various diseases were being brought to him and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. He's just healing disease right and left. And demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, He would not allow them to speak because they knew Him to be the Christ. So again, He's going after these demons. He's casting them out. He had to. Why? Because in that day, Jesus was making room for people to hear the Gospel. He's clearing the house. As it were, as He would say later, He was clearing out the strong man's house so people in the house could hear the Word. So you can understand. So he's pushing back the demonic to free the hearts and minds of people to hear the truth about himself. And we're told then that as he was healing them, demons were coming out of them. He's rebuking them. He wouldn't allow them to speak. Verse 42, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him. And they came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he also said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And again, this manifestation of the power and the authority of Jesus is absolutely crucial, not only to understanding who he is, who he was, but to understanding what happened in Nazareth to get what happened in that Nazareth synagogue on the inauguration day of Jesus' ministry, you need to understand the evidence, the manifestation of all this power and authority that was being seen in Jesus. A single word caught my eye as I was reading through chapter 4. Hadn't really seen it before or thought about it. But we've seen it written now three times and displayed in a big way a fourth time and that word is rebuke. Rebuke. Verse 35, Jesus rebuked the demon in the synagogue. Verse 39, Jesus rebuked the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 41, Jesus rebuked even more demons, and that word rebuke being used again and again and again. And in the Greek, the word rebuke means rebuke. (laughs) Along with the power and the authority that was His to wield, He also had the right of rebuke. Still does. He could rebuke then. He can rebuke now. He would continue in that three-year span of ministry up to His crucifixion. He would rebuke more demons. He would rebuke His own disciples. And not long after this setting, He would rebuke nature itself. Luke chapter 8, verse 24 says, They came to Jesus, they woke Him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing! And He got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. He's got power and authority over the elements. He can talk to the waves and calm them down. 
No wonder the apostles were shaking in their boots, in their sandals there in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. Because Jesus had the right of rebuke. Now, get that. The right of rebuke and the power and the authority. And that, to me, is what makes the first rebuke of His ministry so absolutely mind-boggling. Let's go back to Nazareth. Jesus had just read Isaiah. Jesus applied Isaiah to Himself. And as I said, if He'd left it there, things might have been a little less intense on that opening day of His ministry. But verse 22, Jesus has to push buttons. All were speaking well of Him, wondering at the gracious words falling from His lips. They were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And He said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Which, by the way, they did quote to Him on the cross. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. No doubt you're going to be asking me to do miracles here. Because you're going to hear of the miracles that I do there. In other words, bring out your bling, preacher boy. (laughs) You got miracles? Bring them. Got a little something to impress us here in the hometown? Let's see it. By the way, how did Jesus know what they were thinking? How did He realize there in the synagogue that these were their thoughts, that they were looking to be impressed, that they wanted a thrill, that they were looking for more out of Jesus? Because, note this, Jesus not only manifested power and authority over the Word, power and authority over the spirit realm, power and authority over the physical realm, even power and authority over the elements, Jesus manifested power and authority over the soul of man. I didn't say the spirit, I said the soul. He knew what people were thinking. He could read people like a book. Of course, it's not so hard. We're not not really as subtle as we think we are. We think we're keeping all kinds of secrets. Our thoughts and our doubts and our personal affronts tend to show on our faces. I've seen it and I've done it. You know, you try and hide it, but someone says something offensive and you're not going to sit there and go... You know, we're not so good at poker face. Typically, if we're offended, we go... I mean, something happens in the face, you know? And Jesus read people. John 2.25 says He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. So He's reading their faces. He is reading their minds. He knows what's going on in their thoughts. And then, He... He decides to stir the pot even more. Now look at verse 24. Follow this through. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon to a woman who was a widow. That's 1 Kings chapter 17. You can read the story there. Jesus is given a little history lesson. He continues, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. That's 2 Kings chapter 5. Jesus draws out these two stories from Hebrew Scripture, from Hebrew history, pulls them out choosing Gentile outsiders, two of them, cared for by God in the midst of Israel's distress, 
as his first two examples of redemption and salvation. And that upset the people in Nazareth. What are you doing? What are you talking about? And I read this and I had to pause and go, what were you doing, Jesus? Why didn't you stop? Why did you have to stir it up? And I know, I know Jesus well enough to know He had a reason and a good reason. But I was praying all last week, why? Why did you do this? Jesus was rebuking the heart of His home church. This is the great rebuke. He is rebuking the heart of His home synagogue. Why? Jesus cuts like a knife right through the heart of synagogue superficiality. What we would call casual church. He's in there and what they want is the fluff. Just give us a sermon and let us go to lunch, Pastor. Just give us a little homily that makes us feel good about ourselves and let us head on home. And it was superficial, just like so many services in the church today, and Jesus would have none of it. And so He cuts. He pokes. He prods. And we have got to understand that because as a church, we need to get beneath the surface of hollow holiness. There's too much of that today. How do you know that, Rick? Because people don't respond when things like happened last week in Anacortes happened. The church doesn't get riled up. We should. There should be people picketing on Monday morning at the, at the school saying, we will pray before basketball games and everyone who would like to show up early will stand in the middle of the court and pray. We will stand for what's right. I was upset. Don Coughlin was freaking out. (laughs) And I am so thankful for the bravery of people like Don, who immediately posted on Facebook what had taken place and what was going on, and very um, wisely and meticulously shared words about where this whole separation of church and state thing came from. It's not in the Constitution, by the way. Just, that just incenses me. It keeps getting thrown up as, as if it's law. It was never law. It was Thomas Jefferson telling a, a Baptist convention, a Baptist preacher, look, we'll keep the state out of your business. That was the point. Not the opposite that we're seeing today. And this happened and it riled up Don. Why? Because Don's not walking in hollow holiness. Because Don's not an interested in superficial Christianity. Neither am I. Neither should you be. And we shouldn't walk in the door of a church on a Sunday morning thinking, well, I just need my my snack for the day. Give me my cracker and my juice and a little story and I'll go home. It's like kindergarten. And that's not why we're here. And that building over there, by the way, is not getting built so we can be a bit more comfortable. There's more we're going to be sharing with you as the weeks and, and, and days and months and years, Lord willing, continue. We have a mission here. And that mission is to be a light in the darkness and to shine ever brighter the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while it's wonderful to be in the barn and it's wonderful to fly under the radar, we haven't been called to fly under the radar. We've been called to be a voice shouting from the rooftops the truth. And even if it comes as a rebuke to our culture, then by God we rebuke what's around us. In the name of Jesus... Well, Rick, what about that passage that says speaking the truth in love? Exactly. 
that we love this world too much to watch it go to hell in a handbasket. That we love our friends and our neighbors too much to watch them go to hell because we won't talk to them about Jesus because it might make us uncomfortable. Because they might take it as a cattle prod. Let them take it as a cattle prod. Make them uncomfortable. Better a little discomfort now than a whole lot of hell later. And so Jesus comes into his synagogue and just stirs it up. And he brings right to their faces what's going on in their own minds and their own, their own closed-mindedness and their own little security in the tiny little village synagogue. Let's just do our thing and not worry about anything else. Not worry about the outside world. Not worry about the Naamans. Not worry about the widows in Zarephath. Forget about all the outsiders. You see, that was a big problem in Israel in those days. The Jewish people were only concerned about the Jewish people. They had been called through the prophet Isaiah to be a light to the nations and instead they were rejecting anything that was of the Gentiles. They had closed in. Jesus starts His public ministry rebuking that mindset. And I fear it's the same mindset we see happening in the church today. The mindset of closing in. Fighting for our rights to do what we want to do rather than standing up for the truth so a lost world can be saved. And it's a much much bigger issue. Until we deal honestly and openly with the one who is the true God, we will not accept his offer of eternal life. That's why a non-believer has to come face to face with their need for a Savior. That's why we need believers to be more honest. Yes, it's going to make people uncomfortable. Cheryl was talking to a friend the other day. I don't don't want to get into where and, and all this, but talking to a friend who is who has indicated at some level that she's a believer but doesn't go to church anywhere. And Cheryl invited her to Bible study. Hey, we're starting women's Bible study on Wednesday. You might want to... And before she got the sentence out, the woman said, No, oh, I don't want to have any of that. I tried the Bible. It doesn't work for me. I'm like, wow. Shut her down that quick. And Cheryl came home and she said, It was so weird. She said, We've had so many conversations. She's so sweet. She's so nice. But the second I mentioned the word Bible, she got all upset. You know why? Cattle prod. It was as simple as inviting her to a Bible study. It's a cattle prod. It makes people uncomfortable. The truth does that. The Word of Christ does that. Being Christian in this world does that. Why is it that atheists go after Christians, but they don't go after Muslims? <laughs> why? Why is that? Why is it that the atheist organizations in this country are constantly looking for ways that they can undermine the church in this country? Why? Because the church, just by being here, makes them uncomfortable. Just by being here is is a cattle prod. The rebuke of Jesus of Nazareth was a first offense of what you might say is a much greater offense to come. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The American mindset has been so drilled with the notion that offending someone is a bad idea. Especially if you're coming at it from a Christian perspective. Don't you dare... Offend me. Don't upset me. Why not? I was talking with the Hoffmans last night. We were talking about sporting events and the whole idea that there's no winner anymore. That's just stupid. 
two basketball teams go head-to-head on the basketball court, one is a, is a group of losers that night. It's just the way it is. I'm sorry you lost. They were better. Deal with it. <laughs> but we don't want to be offended. Everybody wins. Everybody gets a trophy. That's just so dumb. And it's this whole mentality, and it's affected the church. We don't want to offend, so let's, let's dial it down. Let's be quiet. Let's pull back. Let's not say anything that's going to stir it up. Or, or, you know, we don't want the cities or the counties upset with us. Hey, we need to start speaking the truth. People should be upset from time to time. They need to think about what's going on. Let me give you a little more on this. At the church in Galatia, a group of Jewish believers claimed that you had to be baptized and circumcised to be saved. And then they pulled out Paul's name, and they were even saying, Paul says the same thing. So Paul responds to that. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But brethren, if I still preach circumcision, then why am I persecuted? <laughs> in other words, he's saying, if I'm preaching the message they're saying I'm preaching, saying I'm preaching, why are they mad at me? And then he says this, don't miss this. He says, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. What are you saying, Paul? If I tote the party line, I undermine the offense of the cross. Guess what? Paul's message was the offense of the cross. The word is scandalon. The scandal of the cross is the message of the gospel. It does scandalize. It should scandalize people. And it should scandalize me when I find myself wandering off into superficial spirituality. The cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, see Jesus bleeding out on the cross, brutalized for our sin, and remember what He did to bring salvation to the world. If the cross is not offensive, it is not sinking in. If it is not upsetting, if it doesn't bother someone, if it's not like a cattle prod, if it doesn't scandalize, then it's been superficialized. Jesus comes in and He just tears the hide off of religion. From day one, He exposes the dark underbelly of of the Jewish um, exclusivity. And He says it's not that way. So let me ask you this after coming at them so strong, after upsetting them so royally, how did Jesus feel about His hometown crowd? Revelation 3.19, I think, gives us a clue. It says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. I know how Jesus felt about the hometown crowd in Nazareth. I know how He felt about every person in that synagogue. He loved them. He loved them so much that He wasn't just about to walk away and let it stay as it was. He had to challenge their wrong thinking. He had to go after their superficiality. He loved them. Well, so how did they respond? Well, verse 28, not so well. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. And stop right there. That's what you do with a heretic or a blasphemer. You throw him off a cliff. Usually it wasn't as high a cliff as Mount Precipice. 
which is quite a breathtaking... Cheryl hates when I teach there because my back is to the cliff and a few feet behind me I'm, I'm a dead man, you know, and she doesn't like even going up there. It's pretty high. But usually they would take a person who was blaspheming or a heretic, they would take them out to a small cliff, push them off, and when they landed on the ground they were stunned and then they would just gather around and stone them to death. That's what you do with a heretic. In the case of Nazareth, they didn't have to worry about stoning because pretty much you're dead when you hit the ground. But that was the intent. Throw him off a cliff. If he dies, great. If he doesn't, we'll stone him while he lies there stunned. That's their reaction. But verse 30 says, Passing through their midst, he went his way. Have you ever passed through the midst of an angry crowd? you ever just walked through a mob who was incensed at you? They were all mad at him. He just went through the crowd and went on his way. And, and so many people have tried to interpret this. What does this mean? They wanted a miracle. Well, they got one. Jesus walks right through the angry mob, untouched and unscathed, then he goes on his way. Now, you know, what would have been a cool miracle is if Jesus let them toss him over the precipice and the angels came and they rescued him and... Oh, wait, that was the third temptation of the devil, wasn't it? He just walks through them. Miracle or not, and scholars have debated that, did he become invisible and just go through? And I doubt it because he was in the flesh. He was not in his resurrected body. He was fully man. And others say, well, then he did he straighten up? I've had enough and push his way through. How did he do this? The bottom line is that Jesus is just not into the spectacular. He's into what's true. He's not about shows. He's about what's right. And so passing through their midst, he went his way. And by the way, to me, that caps the whole story in Nazareth. It's one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. And it's what happens with superficial religion. Passing through their midst, he went on his way. May that never be said of this fellowship. Well, yeah, he was there, but he passed through their midst and just went his way. For all the power, for all the authority, for his divine and loving right of rebuke, there is one thing in this story that Jesus would not do. One thing that Jesus did not do. He did not force faith in Nazareth. He didn't make them believe. He didn't stay and walk them through it bit by bit and force their faith. He didn't wield that divine power and authority to make them believe. And Jesus never will. He will not force faith. And to me, the irony of of those atheist groups who are so opposed to Christians and who who want people to shut up. In fact, in in one Facebook post, and I won't get this exactly right, but but uh, one of the responses that Don got was something like, Do we really want to open the door to all these different uh, religions in the world coming in and praying all the different ways that they want to pray? Yeah, I do. I have no problem. If you want to let the Muslims pray, let them pray. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying let people see the difference between the truth and the lies. Jesus doesn't force faith. And this is something that, that the angry atheist does not understand. I'm not going to force faith on anybody, but I'd like to tell you about Jesus. And then you decide. Nothing's going to come over you. We're not going to bind and gag people and drag them into the barn and go, now you listen, and when I'm done talking, we're going down to the pond. (laughs) Jesus doesn't do that. 
What he does is he strips away pretense. But he leaves the belief up to you. So you choose Jesus or you reject Him. The choice is yours. But understand with Jesus Christ that the reason the rebuke comes, the reason the discomfort comes, the reason the offense comes is because He so loves. And those whom He loves, He rebukes. Those whom He loves, He chastens. Who do you love? I guess that's a question I'll leave you with believers especially this morning. Who do you love? Who do you love so much that you got to tell them even if it's an offense?